1: navy federal credit union our members are the mission savings products insured by ncua investment products are not insured not obligations of navy federal and may lose value picasso knows your vacation home is your best home it's the place that brings family and friends together it's where you're the best version of yourself picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations listings start at 200k for one-eighth ownership
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to dive into the vault. This time, we're bringing you an episode that originally aired on uh, May 28th, 2019. This one was called The Doppelganger Network.
2: Yeah, this one's pretty fun because, you know, obviously we're going to get into the idea of a doppelganger and what it is and fairy imposters and so forth. But but then we're getting into something uh, a lot deeper, uh, something that... Uh, that uh, that really is going to play into a lot of our everyday online uh, interactions. So let's jump right in. Here then, I repeat and sum up. During the endless train journey which took me from Eisenach to Berlin, across the Thuringia and Saxony in ruins, I noticed for the first time in I don't know how long, that man whom I call my double. To simplify matters, or else, my twin, or again, and less theatrically, Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I uh, thought we might have a discussion bringing together the seemingly disparate topics of familiarity, doppelgangers uh, or or doubles, Capgras syndrome, and social media. And I got the idea to talk about this today because a few weeks ago I read this interesting article – that had a very uh, intriguing central comparison or image. It was, a, it was a thought-provoking essay by the Stanford neuroendocrinologist Robert Sapolsky. It was originally published a few years ago in Nautilus. And it was an article comparing the effects of social media and, and sort of the, the digital world like Facebook and you know all that to a psychological condition known as Capgras syndrome. And so today I thought maybe we should start by explaining and discussing uh, Sapolsky's comparison and argument uh, in that article and, and just see where we go from there.
2: Now, Capgras syndrome has definitely come up on the show before. I don't know that we've done a, like a, a designated show on the topic, mm-hmm. uh, but it's certainly come up. But either way, we, we, we do need to you know, provide a, a brief refresher on its history for our listeners. Right.
0: Uh, one of the important cases and which uh, Sapolsky discusses in his article is the case of Madame M. This, this was a woman who lived in France in the uh, early 20th century who had this persistent idea, she was fixated on the idea that her loved ones, including her husband, family members, people she knew, had been replaced by doubles or doppelgangers who looked exactly like them. So she would say, my husband is not really my husband. He's a man who looks exactly like my husband used to, and I don't know what happened to my real husband. And this wasn't her only symptom. She had a number of symptoms. She believed that all kinds of things were happening to uh, to her children. I mean, it's a tragic story. But the underlying, uh, the underlying cause of what would lead someone to believe that people around them were being replaced by doppelgangers or doubles— is uh, is interesting to consider. And so the way Sapolsky in this article characterizes the ultimate disconnect underlying Capgras syndrome is that when the module of the brain used in recognition of faces, specifically involving the fusiform gyrus in the brain— does cognitively recognize someone but at the same time the different module of the brain that normally responds to this recognition with the emotion that we call familiarity does not kick in Uh, and this brain function responsible for generating the emotion of familiarity is what uh, Sapolsky calls the extended face processing system it's quote a diffuse network including a variety of cortical and limbic regions and apparently when we recognize someone, but we don't feel the necessary familiarity emotion that follows when we normally recognize somebody, what the brain often does when faced with this contradiction is to conclude that someone has been replaced by a double. It looks like them, but this person doesn't feel familiar to me. Thus, they must be a physically identical imposter.
2: In the past, I looked at a 2004 um, paper from the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry uh, titled uh, Capgras Syndrome, a review of the neurophysiological correlates and uh, presenting clinical features in cases involving physical violence. And uh, in this, they point out that the delusional identification syndrome uh, generally involves right brain anomalies linked to a number of illnesses and neurological disorders, ranging from uh, schizoaffective disorder and Alzheimer's disease to severe head injuries, pituitary tumors, and migraines. Uh, Even alcoholism can play a role. Mm -hmm. You know, basically, each each of us has a visual system and a limbic system, and the latter helps us to generate and process emotions. Damage or disrupt communication between these two systems, and suddenly a familiar face can can. By our suspicion instead of comfort. Now, fortunately, uh, Capgras syndrome usually subsides with the successful treatment of the underlying medical condition. You know, the tumor goes away, and thankfully, so does this uh, this you know suspicion that people are not what they seem to be. Uh, And in some cases, doctors can prescribe antipsychotic drugs to also achieve the same effect. Mm
0: But you can easily see why the idea of uh, someone being replaced by a double or a doppelganger w- would be such a captivating one. I mean, it's something that um, it's something that feels very perverted. You know, it plays on our great vulnerabilities, and I think it is not a coincidence that this kind of thing has featured into some of the the horror folklore of the world. I mean, you think about the idea of the changeling right. uh, in in fairy folklore, where there was this idea that where the fairy folk would come in and replace someone. You you knew, often a child but sometimes like a husband or wife or you know, someone you knew with a fairy double who looked like them but wasn't familiar to you, didn't act like them. And Now, this is often described as something that people would uh, use to explain You know, maybe when somebody's behavior changed and they didn't seem themselves, they'd think, oh, maybe they've been replaced with a changeling yeah. uh, or used to explain why people might feel that their children weren't their own or, or something like that. But then also you have to wonder if some kinds of neurological issues may be at work here in the minds of the people making the accusation that someone is a, is a fairy.
2: Yeah, and uh, and this obviously this idea in and of itself has played into so yeah you know, so many myths throughout history, and also continues to just resound in our our popular media. Um, and this is slightly older work, of course, but um, invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, and, I mean that plays heavily on this trope, right? That people are being replaced by something else. People that we think we know are not uh, are, are not actually those individuals anymore. Uh, it's been a, a huge uh, yeah, you often find it also you know, not only in speculative fiction but in literary fiction as well. Um, the the quote that I read at the top of this episode is from uh, a 2004 novel uh, titled "Repetition" by uh, one of my favorite French authors, uh, Alain robe Grillet, mm-hmm. who often this is one of, this is a trope that he often threw into his books, like the idea of a double or some sort of an alter ego. And this book in particular, in particular like starts off with a character on a train uh, having glimpsed his double once more.
0: Yeah, it's a very unsettling image. Yeah, the plurality of self, right? Yeah. Um, well, and because – so there are double ways that it can be unsettling. There's the idea that someone you know is replaced by a double. Obviously, if you were to come to believe that through you know, whether you had like a brain injury or, or a neurological condition that caused you to believe that or I don't know if you just believed in fairies and thought maybe that this was happening because of your cultural conditioning. Either way, that would be a terrifying thing. It's another thing entirely to see – to believe that you see another version of yourself, You mm-hmm. know, to think that you had your own double or there was a doppelganger of you.
2: So I think most of us are probably familiar with this, the, the, the idea of a doppelganger. Um, I, you know, I, I would love to say that I learned about doppelgangers for the first time by either consulting a nice you know, book on Germanic mythology, <laughs> and certainly I, I read a lot of different mythology books when I was a kid. Also, I would love to say that my first encounter with doppelgangers was um, a Dungeons and Dragons monster manual. Uh, because that's another huge uh, um, place that they're highly visible as they've long been a staple of Dungeons and Dragons. So oh, they're in there? Oh yeah. I mean, it's a great way to introduce a little um, suspense and chaos into a campaign, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody, uh, you know, an NPC that the characters trust has been replaced or a doppelganger is trying to, or even successfully replaces a member of the party. Uh, so, you know, they, they, there's a lot of fun to be had with a doppelganger. Um, but uh, I have to admit that neither of these cases is true. I heard about them and Initially, in the nineteen via the 1993 Drew Barrymore movie that aired on the Sci-Fi Channel back when this is the old days. Back when before there were wise and Sci-Fi Wise and Sci. Oh, oh, Sifi. You mean Siffy? Yeah, S- Sifi Channel. Yes, um, I remember next to nothing about this film, but it was heavily promoted on the channel, and it introduced uh, the idea to me initially, and then I, you know, followed up by. You know, asking around, hey, dad, what's a doppelganger? And then I looked it up, uh, et cetera. Well, wait a minute. So it was called Doppelganger? That's yep. the name of the movie? That was at least – that was the title of the film as it was promoted on Sci-Fi Channel at the time. Though, of course, it, it's often the case with films of this caliber. They may have had multiple titles, and who knows? They may have been promoted uh, elsewhere uh, under a different title. I just looked it
0: up. It's also known as Doppelganger, colon, The Evil Within.
2: Ah, just to be clear, that was for the people who didn't know what a doppelganger was. <laughs> Always got to have a colon real title. <laughs> so, But here's an interesting thing that I didn't realize until I was uh, researching this episode. I just kind of assumed... You know, obviously the doppelganger itself—the term has Germanic origins—and mm-hmm. I figured this is a creature that emerges from German folk traditions. You mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, in the same way that Krampus came down from the mountains and uh, and Alpine traditions. I just figured the doppelganger was just a standard in the because the again the idea of a mysterious double, either of self or other, is long established. Uh, but this does not seem to be the case. Uh, apparently, the word doppelganger wasn't coined until the 18th century, and it was coined by German novelist Jean Paul in his 1796 novel uh, *Siebenkäs*, uh, in which the main character encounters his own doppelganger or double goer, uh, the, the, and in this case, the doppelganger convinces him to fake his own death and start a new life. Hmm. Uh, and I had to I had to look in closer on this. It's it's not as straightforward as I would like it to be, where he's just like, hey, this is the doppelganger. Uh, apparently, he invents two similar words in this book. He invents the word doppelganger, um, so this would be the name for people who see themselves. But then he also talks about Doppelganger uh, as, a, as a word for the second course when the second course of a meal arrives alongside the first course, because <laughs> Ganger means both you know goer, walker, as well as course in a meal. Huh. So technically, doppeltganger – would be the mysterious double idea that he uh, introduces, and doppelganger itself is just a weird mishap of ordering a multi-course meal at a restaurant. <laughs> but nobody's going to say doppelganger, no, not anymore, no doppeltganger. Uh, but this is this is a good idea. Next time someone introduces a doppelganger in your D and D campaign, remind the DM. That, that's a culinary term, sort of. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the, the, the term ends up resonating in German literature and it became popular in romantic horror literature in general uh, by the mid-1800s.
0: So I think originally the the this idea was always
2: something scary or dangerous, right? Well, yeah, not as much it seemingly in the original, and I didn't read the original German novel uh. um, just to stress. So you know, feel free to correct me if anyone out there is more familiar with the with the literature uh, we're talking about here, but. Uh, it, it certainly took on sinister connotations uh, within the literary tradition. But then uh, I was reading about the term on Webster's and the sinister connotations have apparently dropped off somewhat in its English language usage, uh, which is surprising to me. But then again, I'm coming from the standpoint of knowing them mostly through Dungeons and Dragons and horrible Drew Barrymore movies. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably not like the, the key candidate here. Um I guess the other thing too is I really don't use the term outside of a fantasy context Mm -hmm. like if I encounter someone who looks a lot like someone I know I don't say oh hey I saw your doppelganger today I'm more like. Hey, I saw your maybe I'll say evil twin, which is, you know, a, a, another variation on this trope or I'll say oh I s- just I saw someone who looked just about like you or I if I'm in another city I might say oh I saw your um uh, Chicago you or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I that's the other thing. I just don't use doppelganger outside of fantastic settings myself. I think most people just use it to mean a lookalike now. Yeah, but I guess I don't even use it that way. Like for me, I just, if I think of Doppelganger, I think of something like that creature in Kroll, which pretends to be the wizard. You know, I think something that when you reveal it, it's a horrible uh, pallid creature with jet black eyes. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not specifically talking about like a monstrous scenario, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to use Doppelganger. Okay. That's just me. I also think that part of – but I think part of this whole idea of the sinister connotations fading away, it might have to do with the fact that if it is used by and large for just somebody's double, like if someone is to say, hey, I saw your doppelganger today at Shoney's. <laughs> They're not gonna, you know. There's, there's not gonna be a creepy connotation to that, that sighting. We're not gonna <laughs> say, "Oh my God, I saw your doppelganger at Shoney's, and I was super creeped out. Mm-hmm. I, I think we need to call somebody." No, you're, you're just gonna. It's just gonna be a point of whimsy. And the other thing is that more than likely, it was a first glance situation. Like at first glance, I thought it was you. At second glance, I saw that it was clearly another person, and nothing to freak out about.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I would be shocked, though, if uh, people didn't still interpret this kind of thing as some kind of weird omen or, or, or demon or whatever.
2: Oh, yeah. And I, I was glancing around on the internet, and there's still plenty of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a large part of that is, you know, as with all paranormal uh, experiences or supernatural explanations for mundane uh, you know, uh, encounters— if the supernatural explanation is going to be more appealing. It's going, you know, it makes us feel more important. Mm-hmm. Like you, you want to feel like you're in an Alan Rogue novel and you saw your mysterious double and it, you know, reveals something about your, you know, your, your inner subconscious nature or something, or that you you saw a ghost that looked like you. I mean, all these are far more interesting than yeah, there, you know, there are a whole bunch of people in the world and it was bound to happen sooner or later. But I saw somebody that kind of looked like me and had similar facial hair.
0: The way that you look isn't all. Always- that unique. Yeah. That's
2: like the worst news of all. Yeah, that's, that's just nothing exciting about that, uh, that story. You don't run home, rush home to tell that uh, to your significant other. But it does bring up the question, what are your chances of running into your own unrelated double, or for that matter, running into uh, an unrelated double with someone you know? Well, according to anatomist uh, Dr. Tegan Lucas, quoted in the BBC Future article, you are surprisingly likely to have a doppelganger, <laughs> which I think is a slightly confusing title given uh, the contents of the article. But still, uh, said so that the chances of sharing just eight dimensions with someone else are less than one in a trillion, and with uh, 7.4 billion people on the planet – it was there was only a 1 in 135 chance that there is a single pair of true doppelgangers. No wait, what are these dimensions you're talking about? Like eight f- facial dimensions, like if you you take you take facial features and you divide them up into eight dimensions and go to ma- match those up. Uh-huh. So uh yeah, not like eight spatial dimensions. I'm not sure how that would work.
0: Okay. Basically the eight sliders on your character creator for the right, face. Right, yeah.
2: Now, most of the time, though, again, we're not talking about exact doubles. You know, generally, these are just faces that are similar to our own or similar to someone we know when we focus on the familiarity in a way that may be tied to a means of identifying close kin, uh, you know, in in early human history. Like that's what this recognition system is perhaps for and you know, think again about how generally how you know generally doubles are kind of a first glance thing. The similarities may be jarring, uh, but the differences will be pronounced as well. Now, uh, the thing is, there are so many humans on the planet now. And we live in, uh, you know, closer confines in many situations. Seeing familiar features, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's any shared genetic uh, heritage between two given individuals, right. you know. Except it, in the sense that all humans share right. most of in their the grander, DNA. Yeah, in the grander scheme, yes. But, uh, yeah, if you just, if you're in another city, you see someone who looks kind of like you or looks kind of like a friend, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean they're your long last cousin or they're a long last cousin of, an, of your friend. Right. Uh, but it, it's a situation where we kind of broke the system through population growth and the birth of cities. And, uh, and self-facial uh, recognition and facial recognition abilities, they're also going to vary from person to person. So your doppelganger alarms just may not be uh, as easy to set off as someone else's. So anyway, that's, that's doppelgangers uh, in a nutshell, both the origin of the term, but then a little bit about the, the, the science and the, poten- the, the potentiality of seeing a double or near double uh, somewhere in the world.
0: But thinking about what is at work with the, the, the erroneous detection of doubles in cop-gras syndrome uh, is, I guess, maybe what we should get back to when we come back after a break.
3: Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: All right, we're back. And it's really us. We weren't replaced by uh, strange creatures from the Monster Manual over the course of the advertisement. No, we're here. It's really us. And we're going to continue our exploration.
0: You know, I wanted to answer that with the body snatcher's noise, but I can't, I don't know if I can make it
2: exactly. Oh, from the Donald Sutherland uh, version? Yeah, which is a great version, by the way. I still haven't seen that. I've only seen the the old black and white original.
0: Oh, the Donald Sutherland one is great. It's got Lambert from Alien. Uh-huh. It's got uh, Jeff Goldblum. Mm. He, uh, he's he's feisty. It's got, uh, oh, and it's got, uh, from another sci-fi classic, it's got, what's his name? Who played Spock. <laughs> Hello, Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Leonard yeah. Nimoy, yeah. Leonard Nimoy is fantastic in it. I think
2: it's his, it's his great performance. Well, that's a great cast. But the 1956 original, it had uh, had Kevin McCarthy in the lead role. Mm-hmm. He was terrific. Uh, you also had um, uh, Carolyn Jones, who had uh, played Morticia on The Addams Family. Oh, cool. Yeah. But also, it was, it was just black and white. And it just it really, at least the version I saw of it, like the darkness... Felt just so murky and uh, and dirty somehow. Like it was just a very like nightmare-inducing film when I saw it as a kid. Yeah, the paranoid visual vibe. Yeah, it's
0: got a it's got a kind of a communist infiltration thing. Oh, it?
2: definitely, definitely. That's a that's a very strong element of it, uh, which just goes to show like the ideas of like why this concept of of doubles uh, resonates so because you can apply it to all these other scenarios, uh, social and political.
0: Well, know. yeah, I mean it's a common thing for people to say when. They don't literally think that someone they know has been physically bodily replaced by a by a you know, supernatural double. They might often think, "I don't know this person anymore." Right. I mean, it's a similar like you know they've been replaced. with some, Somebody replaced you with a different
2: person. Yeah, like so, so, you just really you just found out you're getting to know them better. Uh-huh. You found out something about them you didn't know before, and now you think that they're like a different being entirely. no, it's just because you know it turns out that they were maybe. Kind communist or, or- like a different football team.
0: Well, to be fair, also, it could be a a case of, um, you know, people overemphasizing dispositional traits, uh, thinking that people uh, thinking that they should expect their loved ones to be incredibly consistent and trait predictable uh, when, in fact, people are inconsistent. It depends on the circumstances, how they behave. Maybe sometimes you are, are used to seeing someone only in one type of context, maybe used to only seeing them at work. And then when you see them in a different context, when you see them, you know, out with their friends. Or with their family, they seem like a totally different person to you. It can be jarring when you see those differences, and oh, yet yeah. yeah, they're there for almost all of us. Almost none of us like really behave the same way in all contexts.
2: Well, let's talk about the about those contexts, especially yeah. the social contexts.
0: Yeah. So, I, I want to come back to. So, we've talked about doppelgangers a bit and the idea of doubles and, and familiarity and recognition. But I want to come back to uh, that article I mentioned at the beginning, where Robert Sapolsky makes this comparison between uh, what is made clear about the brain basis of familiarity with Capgras syndrome and the ways that uh, technology is changing our social relationships. So. So in, in Sapolsky's words, Capgras syndrome makes clear the brain basis for, quote, the differences between the thoughts that give rise to recognition. Remember, recognition is cognitive. You see somebody and you cognitively know who they are. And the feelings that give rise to familiarity, that's the emotion that says, yes, I know this person. They're different things. And Sapolsky's main point is, quote, these functional fault lines in the social brain when coupled with advances in the online world have given rise to the contemporary Facebook generation. They have made Copgras syndrome a window on our culture and minds today where nothing is quite recognizable, but everything seems familiar and I would actually go further than that and say I think that's an interesting point but the the inverse is true as well, that the online world creates these situations where you have familiarity without recognition and recognition without familiarity. Uh, so to further uh, explore the point he makes a little bit. So he points out that, you know, essentially for all of our evolutionary history, our only social relationships have been face-to-face ones. And I'm struggling to think of a counterexample. Uh, I I can't really think of a counterexample for relationships with real people. But for tens of thousands of years, of course, we have had language and we could have felt as if we had relationships with people we only heard about in stories, for example.
2: Now obviously we, we do eventually reach the point where we have the ability to engage in uh, activities like having a pin pal. Mm-hmm. And that may you know that's a case where you can have certainly a, a non face-to-face example, but, but prior to uh, you know the advent of the necessary um you know systems and technology, yeah, I struggle to think of an example as well. I mean even sort of semi-imagined situations such as speaking to the spirit of a dead uh, ancestor or dead relative right like you're still depending upon a previous face-to-face relationship
0: yes and even even with pen pals i mean even the, the oldest versions of this, the non-digital communications, mm-hmm. just uh, writing to people with letters, even if you've never met them before, that, that is anatomically recent. I mean the yep. vast majority of the time our species has been around, we didn't have writing. We couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. The only relationships we had were face-to-face relationships. And so it's entirely clear that our bodies and our brains have been shaped by an evolutionary niche in in which all relationships were face-to-face ones.
2: Right. Even our history as a symbolic uh, uh, species Mm -hmm. is is, is mostly based on – almost exclusively based on face-to-face communication.
0: Yeah. And so when our only social relationships were face-to-face relationships, it was natural for facial recognition and familiarity at an in-person body-sensing level to be one of our main mediators of how we conceptualized, evaluated, and formed beliefs about our relationships. I mean, if you live in this non-technological world where your only relationships are face-to-face, it totally makes sense for you to use Moment-to-moment, moment, face-to-face, say, visual and touch data and things like that to get the best idea of what your relationships are and how you should feel about them.
2: Right. I mean some of that goes back to the uh, – you know we were discussing earlier about uh, uh, you know, kin identification, being yeah. able to tell like this, this is a relative. I can see it in their face.
0: Exactly. But uh, of course, there have been these technological changes that now allow relationships to exist and persist under circumstances other than face-to-face interaction. Of course, we already mentioned writing and literacy. Now, this allowed you to maybe send letters. Though I'd say even for most of the time that's been around, that has been something that is limited to a small percent of humans, you know, because for most of human history, most people have not been
2: literate that's true and then and then, of course, again i feel, I feel like the the pin pal like the the the, the pin pal situation in which there is never a face to face meeting like that's a that's a, a slim uh, slice of the overall pie. Most of the other um written communications are going to be carried out with individuals um uh, in which there was at least a previous face to face communication yeah,
0: but then think about how hard this kind of thing can make relationships. I bet every single person listening has had the experience of relationship strife caused by – a feeling uh, by a misunderstanding or some kind of feeling of emotional estrangement brought on by the media through which you communicate. A lot of us don't feel very comfortable talking to people on the phone. A lot of us don't, uh, you know, we have the experience of sending emails and being misunderstood, mm-hmm. having people not read your tone correctly or getting worried about the way somebody punctuated a
2: sentence in an email. I, I mean, I bet you've had this experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think we all have both in, you know, personal contacts and work contacts. You know, um, you know I guess, you know, hopefully if, you have, if you're dealing a lot uh, via email with someone, you'll kind of get a feel for their tone and mm-hmm. how they tend to speak. Uh, but even then, there's so much room for miscommunication. Like even when you, you feel like you, you really, uh, you know, are, are up to speed on how they present themselves in a textual manner.
0: Robert, if you don't mind me saying, you're kind of a terse emailer. Am I? I can see people getting worried when they get an email from you that maybe you're mad at them or something. Huh. I don't think that's necessarily always the case. Maybe sometimes you're mad at me. But I mean, <laughs> uh, I think you just tend to not spend a whole lot of time, you know, worrying about how to phrase stuff on email. You just kind of bang it out and go, oh, wow. which I admire because, <laughs> you know, I it is, uh, you know, the amount of time that people waste trying to phrase stuff on email is is it's a horror
2: the thing is uh, i use, i remember when i was younger i would have these these long email correspondences going on with friends mm-hmm. where we would respond like like sometimes sentence by sentence or at least paragraph by paragraph mm-hmm. where we'd respond to specific points and uh, and and write at length in response and at some point, this just faded away. Uh, I, I I haven't really, I haven't really thought about it too much to to try and figure out exactly like at what point, like which, like technological or communications change altered that, or uh, and or what life changes uh, led to that occurring. But uh, and at the same time, you know, I used to have uh, you know long phone conversations with people, and now it's, ra- it's it's extremely rare for me to have a long phone conversation. It's basically like two people in the world that I have phone conversations with on a regular basis. Uh, One's my wife and one's my mother. And that's pretty much it. Do you think maybe uh, these changes have been brought on by
0: other technological changes, like the rise of social media? I suspect they
2: have, yeah. Yeah. Like instead of having this, this this longer, more thoughtful stream of communication with somebody that, you know, now lives in another city, you just have a continual trickle, you know, so again, we just have that familiarity, like a triple familiarity going on instead of like a, an actual a stream of communication. Well,
0: and it also, I, I think that the way that uh, technology has changed our communication sometimes forces us to become a version of ourselves that we don't recognize. I mean, I was talking about how we write work emails. I actually don't love the way that I write work emails. I feel like often I have to, I, I overuse like exclamation points and smiley faces and all that, and it's mainly just because I don't ever want to accidentally make somebody feel bad over email or make them get the wrong idea that oh, I'm yeah. mad at them or like something like that. Double down
2: on the emotional intention, yeah. Of those, and those
0: statement. I hate it because it, I I can feel myself feeling insipid and feeling not like myself as I type it, mm-hmm. but I would rather feel like that than worry that I'm giving people the wrong idea or letting them think. I'm mad at them, or something like that. You know?
2: Yeah, I mean, but the, 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 I totally understand it. Yeah, sometimes you feel like you have to really make it clear. And I, and I do find myself doing more and more of that with texts uh, when I'm sending a text, uh, you know, via my uh, tiny pocket computer. Oh, your pocket god? Yes, tiny pocket <laughs> god, yes.
0: Uh, yeah, and so we've got obviously, you know, all the stuff we're talking about, email, phone, uh, text messages, and internet communications. Uh, the photograph, in a way, kind, kind of a modern uh, communication method, sort of.
2: Yeah, as it's become, you know, it's increasingly easy to, to take uh, digital uh, photographs and send them to other people. It becomes a, a form of communication as does uh, – you know. You mentioned emoticons as being like a way of of um, of tweaking textual content. But in, in many cases, like they're the prime uh, uh, language that is used in communicating mm-hmm. uh, to say nothing of memes.
0: Oh, I shudder at this thought. Memes are – there's going to be a day in which the English language is replaced by memes. It's just like instead of an alphabet, you have a meme a and you just like put – you paste the memes together to form ideas.
2: Yeah, I mean, I already feel um, you know, and maybe this is just me feeling old, but um, I, I feel we, we've already reached the point where there'll be a thread about something, say on Reddit, mm. and there'll be a meme, and I have to I have to research what the meme means. Like it's uh-huh. a new meme, and I have to figure out like where it came from, how it's used, and how it's potentially being misused, and how it's like evolving out of that misuse to understand like what the prevailing idea is. Uh, that is being um, expressed
0: memes as a whole are exactly like words in the sense that you can try to write down a definition for a word, but word usage changes over time. I mean, you, mm-hmm. words don't actually have fixed def- definitions. You can't control how people use them.
2: Yeah, it kind of like the whole like literally, right? Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, sorry, you lost that battle. That word's changed. You can cling to the past, but sorry, it was just misused into a new usage. Oh, I try not to correct people on that one, but that does—it still gets me.
0: My blood was literally boiling, and all that.
2: <laughs> he literally took his head off. Yes,
0: but yeah. So we're we're talking about the you know the technological media on which our relationships happen, and I think many of our relationships, especially in the last you know ten years now happen primarily on these media. Uh, And and on one hand, that can be a good thing because it allows us to maintain relationships with people who we want to have relationships with, but can't, you know, people we can't practically arrange to see in person as often as we'd like to. Several of my best friends live in different cities Mm -hmm. and we've been friends for years and I'm only able to maintain friendships with them because of this technology. So I would hate to lose those friendships. But also I wonder about the fact that what is it doing to our culture when there's a substantial number of people who like, I don't know, maybe 70% of their friendly social interactions happen over a machine.
2: Yeah. I mean, even people like flesh and blood friends that I have, in the city with me. Like we still have to do like a, like a, you know, a 30 email chain to plan to meet each other in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, like even if it's like a, a, a semi-regular thing, like we know where we're going to go. We know when we're going to do it, but we still have to coordinate all of these things. So how much of the relationship is truly face-to-face versus digital?
0: Yeah, and so Sapolsky says in his article that this technological reality has conditioned us in a way to dissociate our traditional pathways of recognition and familiarity. Uh, So he, he writes, quote, thus, not only has modern life increasingly dissociated recognition and familiarity, but it has impoverished the latter in the process, so impoverished familiarity. This is worsened by our frantic skill at multitasking, especially social multitasking. A recent Pew study reported that 89% of cell phone owners use their phones during the most recent social gathering. That sounds low to me. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: We reduce our social connotations to mere threads so that we can maintain as many of them as possible. This leaves us with signposts of familiarity that are frail remnants of the real thing. And I think he's really on to something there about the idea of... um, Um, maintaining it's almost like putting up these scarecrows of things like these technological stand-ins for relationships that are not really functioning biologically and psychologically for us the way relationships should but we'd rather maintain as many of those as we can rather than have fewer relationships but more face-to-face interaction you know quality time and all that
2: yeah so we, we end up maintaining these trickles of, uh, of, of actual social connections as opposed to streams of social connection. So he's saying there that we essentially
0: degrade our sensitivity to the familiarity aspect of, of what knowing somebody is, a so social interaction. It's mm-hmm. recognition and familiarity. And when we degrade the familiarity thing, he says, quote, uh, that, that we become increasingly vulnerable to imposters. Our social media lives are rife with simulations and simulations of simulations of reality. And and so, of course, you know, that's, uh, you know, one example there is people who claim to know you, but they're not. they uh, uh, you know, a friend's email account gets hacked. Some right. hacker contacts you and tries to get you to open some malware. That's one example. But there's a million versions of this thing where uh, where our sort of like low resolution familiarity detectors in this digital
2: world are being exploited by people who
0: are not actually our real friends—
2: so, I basically, our online, their online version of ourself is essentially a, a a like you said, low resolution simulation. And so, if someone comes along to hijack that simulation, it's all the easier to do so. You don't have to be a high level magic user to uh, to to take on the likeness of another individual when the threshold for uh, duplication is so low.
0: Yeah. But then, here, here's the turn. So Sapolsky says, by any logic, quote, this should induce us all to have capcraw delusions, to find it plausible that everyone we encounter is an imposter. After all, how can one's faith in the veracity of people not be shaken when you sent all that money to the guy who claimed he was from the IRS? Mm-hmm. And I think there is something going on here. It didn't start with this, but this this imposter kind of thing, the, the doppelganger effect of the online world and the fact that it's easy to be tricked by an online doppelganger does help contribute, I think, to this concept. I'm sure you've encountered this, Robert, that the internet is not real life.
2: People always say this, right? Oh, you know, yeah. Or it's if like, they talk about somebody being a friend in real life.
0: In real yeah. life versus mm-hmm. on the internet. But if most of your social interactions are happening on the internet, in what sense is that not real life? I mean, of course the internet is real life. It is, it is a, it's like a technology. The stuff you're doing on it is actually happening. It's not like it's something that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But you are making a distinction there. People in some way are, are seeing these interactions as de-realized or as not having uh, you know not material in the way that other interactions are. And yet they're where we're doing most increasingly all of our stuff.
2: Yeah, and I wonder if part of that you know, I would I wonder how this plays out generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like for me, I probably maybe I had a had a sense of the internet as being not real life more so early on because mm-hmm. the Internet was in some respects like kind of an escape. I mean, mm-hmm. at the same time, yeah, I was—I remember having to you know, use a like a college email address and all that kind of stuff, you know. So you're still you're still doing in real real life stuff via the internet, yeah. but then a lot of other stuff is. Is about escaping, either just in general, like escaping into the into fantasy, or like escaping geographical boundaries, you know, yeah. and uh, and you know being able to connect with people in other cities.
0: Well, I think there's another way in which there are multiple ways in which people came to see the internet as not real life, and one of them is is anonymity. Mm. You know that if you could go around invisible all day, what's that Harry Potter cloak that makes you invisible? Mm.
2: Oh the the well, what was the title? I mean it's a new cloak of invisibility, but I don't remember if it had uh, any particular name. Well, whatever that is, you,
0: you could be invisible in a way that would feel not real, right? Because if nobody can see you and nobody knows who you are wherever you are, then there are no consequences, and consequences are kind of what gives us the feeling of reality. So that's part of it, but I think also Sapolsky's onto something here in that, the, like the, this estrangement of the sense of recognition and familiarity is it makes the internet start to feel like this world of social delusion, this sort of like always capgraw vulnerable type uh, landscape where nothing is really real and you can't trust anything, and yet at the same time we're for, we're constantly forced to put our trust in it as a matter of fact because that's where we're doing everything. But then, of course, uh, back to the idea of like all these you know threads that people maintain and sort mm-hmm. of mistake for meaningful relationships online. Uh, he, he comes back in, on that and says, actually, you know. It seems more the opposite has happened than than inducing us to all have Capgraw delusions, where we see people we knew and we think of them, uh, see people we know and we think of them as uh, as you know being a doppelganger or or not familiar. Instead, we go the other way and we see people we don't really know very well, but we just have to attach this feeling of familiarity to them. It allows all of this false familiarity, and this really comes up in uh, I I don't know. Have you read about the the idea of uh, you know parasocial interactions? on social media.
2: You know, I don't think prior to this uh, episode, I, I, I knew it by that term. Mm-hmm. But of course, you do see it all the time.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just, it's ubiquitous on the internet. It's the idea, you know, it's an asymmetrical relationship, the way like you follow a public figure who doesn't know who you are. But there are all of these indications that many people think of these parasocial asymmetrical relationships as relationships. It's like they almost view this Instagram influencer that they follow as mm-hmm. like an acquaintance, somebody they know
2: but of course that person doesn't
0: know them.
2: Yeah, I I really started thinking about this classification though, of parasocial relationships uh and in wondering like to what extent it can or could have existed in previous times. Like what is the earliest possible example of a parasocial relationship? Like maybe it could be a situation where you have like a uh, and uh, like a leader um, in a given community, and then you have like a very low level person in that community mm-hmm. uh, that that the uh, you know the, the 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 tribal leader just has no uh, I, you know real idea of who they are. Yeah. But of course, you know who the leader is. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess that's. Uh, you know, sort of the the in real life version of this. But we see it, it seems like we see far more of it uh, in, in in modern civilization, uh, in, certainly in the internet age, but even pre-internet, like the idea of celebrity uh, just enables uh, this sort of relationship to be possible. Celebrities and leaders.
0: <laughs> and of course, uh, I would say that uh, social media, of course, did not invent the idea of celebrities, no, and no. so so it didn't invent these relationships like you're talking about. You know, you've always had leaders, you've always had public figures in some way or another. Social media, I think, has increased the uh, the day-to-day relevance of these types of relationships, you know, where you can like check in on on the accounts of the people that you follow every day and they don't know you. But, you know, you, you especially I feel like Instagram, especially of all the platforms I can think of is, is really rife with this um, of like these influencers and people who lead kind of glamorous lives and allow you to see into their lives mm-hmm. by showing you their house and their pets and their lunch and you know you get all these interior views and it's very visceral because it's visual and often you know visual even in a way that's edited to make it more colorful and exciting with the post-processing filters and all that
2: right and of course at the same time like like all social media representations like this they are um they are incomplete. they're incomplete they're crafted yeah, yeah they're crafted they're um, uh, they're they're maintained in a very strategic way usually so you don't even have like a full vision of what you know random celebrity life actually is, you just have this idealized version of it.
0: So I, I just want to read one last uh, quote from Sapolsky's article before we move on. So he says... Um, uh, he ends by saying quote throughout history capgras syndrome has been a cultural mirror of a dissociative mind where thoughts of recognition and feelings of intimacy have been sundered it's still that mirror today we think that what is false and artificial in the world around us is substantive and meaningful it's not that loved ones and friends are mistaken for simulations but that simulations are mistaken for them i think i kind of disagree with him a little bit because i think it's actually both of those things it's like that the, the dissociation
2: goes two ways. In either case, though, we, we do typically, f- f- we often find ourselves in situations, though, where we are we are distracted from from real life um, relationships and real life socialization, and instead we have to check in on these little streams on our phone to just uh, to, uh, these uh, the, the, these simulated relationships that we have on social media.
0: Do you ever have the sort of direct doppelganger experience, like with the fairy changelings or the doppelganger for a friend on the internet? Like you have a family member, you have a friend who you love in real life, but when you see the way they are on the internet, I don't know what it, you know, the kind of stuff they post on social media or Mm -hmm. whatever, you don't feel like you recognize them and you don't really like them. I, I've definitely known people who are like that. I'm not going to name any names, but who are, who are like that on, say, Twitter. Like, I, I think, like, I love this person, but if all I knew about them was the way they act on Twitter, I, would, I, I wouldn't I would be able to stand them.
2: Well, social media, especially as it pertains to, you know, some topics, take politics, for instance, mm-hmm. I think it does tend to bring out the worst in us. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that is a, a risky comment to make. I think we can all think to specific examples of that in, in all of our own lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that can lead you to a situation where you're like, well, I thought I knew that person, but I guess I don't because look at this meme they just shared. Right. You know? Um, and- uh, But I think also though, w- when
0: that happens, we're just not appropriately appreciating the way that circumstances and situations uh, change change people's behavior. Mm-hmm. That we're the same way.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the
0: ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this.
3: There's joy in every journey.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save.
2: <laughs> but uh, I feel like like 60, maybe 75% of my emails are me just saying, um, cool, sounds good. I think that's my my standard, yep. which I feel is sufficient. It's just me saying yes to whatever you just said, uh, and I, I'm I'm cool with it. Do you have an Android phone? No, I don't. Oh, okay. You use Gmail? Yeah, you use Gmail. Yeah. But oh, I don't use the – I know you have the um, – the sort of you know like the auto language uh, feature starts telling you what to say. It's yeah. like here's the
0: email you could write. Man, when I saw that thing, I was like, get out! What <laughs> the
2: heck? No, no, no. Well, it's 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 an easy jump to go from there to like authorize simulations of yourself. Yeah, you know, to just, which I, I really, I mean, that's not far off. That's it's basically already here, where you just give your account the authority to to make responses like this, like, cool, sounds good, I'll get back to you, you know, that sort of thing.
0: Well, it's not going to, I don't know, I mean, even if I would type exactly the words it's suggesting, I still don't want to let it do that. The fact that, like, Gmail is going to, is going to compose an email for me to my parents or my wife, that, no, 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 unacceptable.
2: There's so much room for a misunderstanding, even if we're applying um, you know, most or all of our attention to crafting an email—it uh-huh. uh, feels like a machine. Even a very like talented uh, AI would have difficulty with that. There's just so much nuance in human communication, and knowing who you're communicating to. Like sometimes it's a matter of knowing there are certain words you shouldn't use with a, in, in another individual. Like maybe you're aware of what you know. Maybe uh, you know some sort of a trigger for them, or. Or you know it may pertain to some sort of uh, you know um, you know incident from uh, from from your personal past with that person. Like there's so many potential uh, uh, holes to fall into when composing written communication. Why trust that to the, to the machine? Or I don't know. Maybe the reverse is true. Always trust it to the machine as long as they have all those caveats in mind. You know, I
0: think one thing that's interesting to me is about the psychological effects of heavy social media use. Um, I feel like we're still in the early days of of getting a picture of what that's like and that there appears to be a lot of conflicting evidence, I, th- I think because we, we haven't refined all our categories and ways of testing things yet. I do often say that I, I think uh, in emerging—this is just a prediction. I could turn out to be totally wrong, but my guess is that in the coming years, there's going to be uh, emerging consensus that heavy social media use, especially say among young people like teenagers and stuff, is correlated with a lot of negative psychological outcomes and uh, you know d- depression and things like that, and that there will be like a new— cottage industry of like the lobbyists who deny the emerging science on uh, on social media. But uh, I mean, I guess that's still to be seen. I mean, we, we've only got a few years of data to work with so far.
2: Yeah. Uh, when trying to imagine the future, it's difficult and also, you know, kind of, you know, anxiety inducing to try and think about where, where our social media usage is going. Uh, on one hand, I guess I'm, I'm hopeful that more and more people will You know, choose to if if not opt out of social media, uh, but or you know at least rethink how they're using it. Step back from it. Even Mm. I kind of think of it. It's kind of like a hot tub. You know, when you first get into a hot tub, you just you just all in. You know, it's like let me just go all the way up to my ears in this, and uh, and I'll zone and zone out. And you know that's good for a while. But then eventually you realize if I stay in here. Um, I'm going to die. Uh, so maybe I need to like only put half of my body in here. Maybe I should just sit on the side and dip my feet in here or maybe better yet, maybe I should go get in the pool for a while mm. and do that. Or even maybe I should leave altogether and go home and see my family. Yeah. That sort of thing, you know?
0: It is nice at first. I remember thinking about when I very first got on Twitter, it seemed like it was nice for a while that I was mostly just seeing things that, uh, like uh, learning and things that people were enthusiastic About People were sharing their enthusiasms. Here's a great thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and over time, I'm not sure exactly what happened, uh, but uh, it seemed like it transformed into more like this uh, this swamp of misery where the primary emotions coming off of it was just that everybody hates everything.
2: Of course, uh, all of this, of course, is dependent on on how exactly one uses a social media platform, Mm -hmm. who you follow. Um, like for instance, uh, like on Instagram, obviously there's a lot of celebrity, uh, worship going on a lot oh, of yeah. parasocial, uh, relationships taking place there as we already mentioned. I don't see as much of that. And part of that is just cause I like only follow Family and friends, and I only use it myself for family photos, and it's like a you know it's a closed account.
0: Well, I do think that there is uh, some evidence I've seen so far that, and I'm not sure how solid this is yet, but there's some evidence that there's a pretty big difference in the psychological effects of social media depending on whether you primarily use it to as a way of keeping up with family and friends versus as a way of interacting with public accounts.
2: Right. But I think – but then again, one of the dangers in all of this is even if there is a preferred – if there is a healthier way to use a given platform, you are still fighting against the intended usage of that platform as engineered by the makers of that platform. The, the intended usage
0: of the platform is to open it up and never get off. Exactly. And keep, yeah, yeah Just.
2: And so like, it's difficult to compete with that. I mean we've yeah. talked about this on the show before uh, in terms of gambling technology mm-hmm. and then social media technology. I mean you're you're really up against a fearsome adversary in telling yourself I'm only going to use this in a way that is mentally beneficial for me. And not just purely uh, economically beneficial uh, for the the masters of the medium.
0: You know, Jaron Lanier, who we've talked about on the show before, mm-hmm. has written a book about it, basically it's saying everybody should delete their social media accounts, just get off these platforms mm-hmm. and that will be, it will make a much better world. And he's got a whole argument for it in, the, in this book, which I haven't read yet, but I uh, plan to. In fact, we asked for some review copies, but I think we should see if we can try to get uh, Jaron Lanier on the podcast. Oh, yes. I think we should. I also wonder what he would think about this uh, comparison. I still feel like there's a lot of stuff to work out, but uh, I, I sense that uh, Sapolsky's comparison here about the the rift between the emotion of familiarity and the, and the cognitive uh, recognition function of the brain uh, that, that's at work in Capgrass syndrome. This is a really rich kind of uh, comparison for, for social media and, and media technology generally, and I, I expect to keep having more thoughts about it.
2: Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I I don't want to just sound like I'm just saying, like, the people are awful and that technology makes us more awful. Uh, you know, I, I don't want that to be my ultimate argument. I mean, ultimately, I would say that technology enables humans to do amazing things. Mm-hmm. And if we direct this power in the right way, uh, you know, there's plenty that we can do. There's plenty we have done to connect people and 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 build a better world out of those connections but Obviously, there's more that we could do, and and I guess the, the worrisome thing with these platforms, the various platforms that we're talking about, is like, what is the the ultimate advantage? What is the ultimate intention of the masters of those given platforms? Yeah. What do they want? And even in cases where they may say, "No, we want to build something that brings people together. We want to build something uh, that uh, empowers, uh, you know, a better world." Like, is that impulse going to win out in the overall structure of this given social media platform, or is it going to be Profitability or uh, engagement or some other uh, metric that is ultimately more important to the corporate entity. It's always profitability. Of course, that's always what's going to win out. But I feel like there's – I have to hold on to the possibility – that That humans can do better, though, you well, know?
0: I mean, that does make me wonder if perhaps what you could do instead is have some kind of nonprofit open source social media mm. uh, platform that would that would compete and try to replace these for profit forms that are deranging our relationships and and causing this uh, familiarity recognition rift and potentially having all these psychologically negative consequences on our lives and on our culture broadly. I'm not sure exactly what that would look like. I mean, it would probably be a start if there was just something that was like Facebook, but that did not manipulate what people saw and prioritize, you know, conflict and, and paid content. But then again, even just with the, you know, the bare bones basics of Facebook, I wonder about, you know, having these friend networks, uh, does, does does the, even the most basic mechanic of something like Facebook encourage people to go through these mental processes where they sort of degrade their standards of what counts as a healthy relationship?
2: I mean, maybe ultimately that's where, where AI can come in, you know, (laughs) and we just, we need uh, artificial intelligence to uh, dictate. Uh, where and how to maintain healthy relationships online I and mean, mm. that's that's the ultimate answer i don 't know just hand it off to. An AI deity to, to uh, manage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why well, I'm not hopeful about that either. Again, this is back to like I, I'm worried about these little AI squirrels, not the. <laughs> I'm not worried about the great basilisk. I'm I'm worried about the the minor dumb AIs that yeah. that are running through our lives like a pest infestation.
2: Now, uh, you know, not not to end things in too negative a place. I do want to refer listeners back to our episode the great episodes, uh, the great eyeball wars. Oh yeah, uh, where we went into a. Of this, uh, particularly about you know the, about how social media and these platforms and our phones are gamed uh, to uh, capture our attention and hold our attention. In those episodes, we also shared some uh, some advice that experts have given about how to fight back, how to limit your use of social media and/or your phone. Yeah, and uh, and so I mean there and there are increasingly more tools out there. I believe you know some of these these phones have ways you know now to to. Uh, track how much you're using them or even to remind you not to use them in certain situations.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I can't honestly and non-hypocritically tell people to get entirely off of social media because one of the things is I have to maintain social media accounts because of my job at this podcast where we've got to like promote stuff on social media. And, you know, we've got a a Facebook discussion module that I really enjoy using. I probably would have deleted my Facebook account, but I enjoy our, our discussion module with our fans there
2: yeah yeah it's, it's probably one of the the main reasons I go on Facebook these days. So discussion module, don't screw this up let's keep <laughs> let's keep this positive uh relationship.
0: But I mean, I will say that the reason it's on there is not any inherent strength of Facebook. It's on there because of audience inertia. I mean, that, that's where the people are. Right. Like, if you want to have a place where people already have accounts and they can join, Facebook is. They tell us the place where you can do that. Uh, you know, I'd love a world where somebody created some kind of non-destructive, open-source, uh, you know, uh, nonprofit platform where you could do a similar thing if enough people could get on there.
2: All right. So, so there you have it. Obviously, there there are a lot of there's a lot of areas here we can call out to listeners on uh, i mean first of all have you ever encountered a really um impressive double in your life like someone that required uh you know not even just a first and second glance but maybe a third glance to realize that they were not your friend or perhaps not yourself mm-hmm. uh, we'd love to hear from that all, i mean for to that uh, you know if you've actually had any experience with Capgras syndrome um you know we would lo- we would uh, really appreciate any first hand knowledge of uh, experiences like that uh and then beyond that when we get into the you know the well, of course the, the literary uh, and the uh, you know the fictional and the mythological connotations if you have a particular uh you know favorite double you want to share but certainly we spent most of the time here talking about this social media doppelganger idea and so, I mean, you're pretty much all on social media at this point. Well, really, you're either on social media or you've made a very, uh, um, you know, firm choice not to be. So whichever category you fall into, I feel like you probably have thoughts uh, related to this episode. And we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Get in touch. In the meantime, if you want to listen to more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find uh, a link there to our uh, little merchandise store where you can get some squirrel shirts. Uh, It's a fun way to support the show. But the best way to support the show is to simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. If you can leave some stars, leave a nice review, do that. And best of all, tell somebody about the show. Yeah, tell them uh, online. Uh, But even better, if you see somebody in real life, tell them about the show. In real life, wow. uh, because I feel like uh, uh, you know it's gonna it's gonna impress people all the more. That's right. Huge
0: thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing because uh, Robert has got a little uh, stress ball over here and he's squishing the guts out of it as we speak.
2: Yeah, there's like a, some sort of white pus coming out of it. I had it <laughs> for like two weeks and it's already uh, squeezed out. So. Uh, I'm not going to name the brand. because Maybe I just have a defective (laughs) one.
0: Anyway, sorry. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from
1: iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.
3: Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission?